Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. So the reading today is from... Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 33. So I'm just going to read that now. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Thanks, Jesse. Hey, I just wanted to say one more thing too. Um, Regarding kids and youth ministry, as we think about next year, if this is something that God's placed on your heart, a desire to be a part of that, we'd love to have that conversation too. I know that as the year finishes up, maybe that's not something you're thinking about, but this is a ministry that's so important at church. We just want to keep highlighting that, that the, the need is great, as you saw the people stand up before. The need is great. The opportunity is even greater. And so we want to just put that before you. I'm going to pray again, though, that God would speak to us, and then uh, let's hook into this. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the opportunity that we have now to slow down and reflect on the season that we have entered into. Uh, Lord, we know that for some of us that uh, coming into this Christmas season, perhaps we're not feeling the excitement and the joy that... Maybe we even feel that we should. And so we pray this morning that as we gather to your word and reflect on this season, God, would you create in us a childlike awe and wonder again in the beauty of what we have in Christmas and what we have in Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, I learnt of a new term, uh, something that we all get, well, not all get, but uh, something that people can get in November. It's called the Great November Disease. And uh, here, here it is, uh, it's from a podcast uh, from ABC Listen, and it's called, uh, it was called this, Why So Tired, The Great November Disease at Work. I think this is true whether you're paid for your work or not paid for your work. Um, but basically the podcast was talking about this idea that we get through the year and we get into November and we're tired and we're exhausted, but what we think in our head is if we can just limp through to the Christmas season, that everything's going to be solved. You know, we look at the promises of Christmas, you know, the promise of time off, the promise of time with friends and family, the promise of good food and all that sort of stuff. And we think, if I can just get there, then it's going to deliver on all of my pain and problems. Now, I don't know if this resonates with you. 
resonates with me. I mean, we put our Christmas tree out weeks ago for this exact reason. We just thought, well, let's get into the festive season and, you know, that'll make us feel better. And it is true that psychologically, actually, if you don't believe this, there are articles about this, you do feel better with a Christmas tree up, right? That's actually a psychological reality. But what this guy was saying in this podcast is if you think this season's going to deal with your problems, the reality is it doesn't actually deliver on the underlying issues of your tiredness and exhaustion. The promises fail to deliver. Now, I don't know if this uh, resonates with you or not. Um, Maybe you love Christmas, maybe you loathe Christmas. It doesn't really matter. The, The thing is, as I was listening to this, it sparked in me curiosity to think about the promises that the Bible gives us. Because the truth is that when we come to the Bible, the Christian story of Christmas brings with it a bunch of promises. And today, as we gather together, what we want to think about is this idea, when it comes to the promises of the Bible, what difference do these promises make for us? You know, like we we generally know the gist of the story, but what is this promise? What does the promise of the Christmas time do for us? What, What difference does it make? Is it actually good? And so this is what we're going to think about as we get to our passage today, because we're in this section in Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at from verse 5 right through the end of 38, actually, and we're going to see two promises in this section, but in both of these promises, so just up front, spoilers here, it's the promise of John and the promise of Jesus, right? But in this section, what we're going to look at is what the promise is, why the promise is good, and then what it means for us, what we can learn from the response. So if you've got your Bibles there, have them open, or to be on the screen behind me as well. We pick it up in the first promise, which is the promise of John, and we pick the story up with some context in verse 5, where we meet Zechariah and Elizabeth in the time of King Herod of Judah. And let's find out what we know about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Verse 6, Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So so here we're introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and the context wants us to know that they were faithful, mature in their faith, but they couldn't have kids, all right? Now, this is important because in ancient Israel, they thought that if you were childless, it's because of your sin, but actually, they were faithful and blameless, and yet they still couldn't have kids, and so what's the promise here? Well, the promise, let's, let's read about it. The promise is in verse 11, but we first find out in verse 8 to 10 that Zechariah is a priest who's chosen by Lot to go into the temple and burn some incense. But what's significant is not just that he gets to do that, but what happens in there. And, and we read that in verse 11. The angel of the Lord appeared to him at the right side of the altar. And Zechariah saw him and he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. So here's the first promise of the Christmas season. It's the promise of a baby, but it's not the, you know, the baby in a manger. It's the promise of the baby of John. That's the first promise that we get in the, the, the passage of, in, that we've got here, the gospel, the eyewitness account of Luke. It's the promise of John. And it's, it's good news, but it's not just good news because a childless couple can have a baby now. No, there's something more to it than that. And so what is it? Why is the promise good? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 14, He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take take wine or other fermented drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He'll bring many people back to Israel. 
uh, people of Israel back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient of the wisdom to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Okay, so the first promise of Christmas is John. Why is this promise good? Well, you get a sense there. It's because he's, he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He's going to bring people back. But there's actually more to this. In fact, the more to this is, is the reality that this is a quote from the Old Testament of, of the description of John here. And the quote is from the book of Malachi. So uh, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And in the last book of the Old Testament, in the last chapter, in the last sentence, it's talking about this idea that one day the day of the Lord will come where God will make all things right, where God will bring peace where there's chaos and hope where there's despair. And in Malachi, we see that before the day of the Lord comes, someone else has to come first. So let's have a look. Look, this is Malachi chapter 4, and it says this, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day that the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction, is how the verse finishes But do you get a sense here of what Malachi is saying? He's saying the day of the Lord's coming, where God will make all things right. But before that day comes, someone's got to come first, the prophet Elijah. Now, do you see, when we get back to Luke, do you see why John is so significant? Remember, the the verse said there, I will send, he, he will go on before you in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so what Luke is saying in this moment, what God is saying to Zechariah in this moment, is that this baby born is that baby from Malachi 4. He's the one who's coming before the day of the Lord comes. And and when you start to understand this, you realize why this is so significant. It's because the prophet coming, John coming, means that Jesus is coming soon. In fact, the way that I think about it is kind of like this. You know... um, you know, we've all gotten used to delivery drivers, right? And, and ordering stuff online. But, but let me tell you, back in my day, when uh, these things started out, you never knew how long something was going to come uh, take to get to your house. You know, do you remember that? Right back in the day when deliveries started happening and you ordered online, you couldn't track stuff. You didn't know when it was coming. And so sometimes you wouldn't wait months for things. And then finally, do you know that feeling where finally the, the truck would pull out or the van would pull out the front? And, you know, you sort of get excited. And then the guy gets out of the car and he walks up to your house and not your neighbor's house. And then he knocks on your door. We all love delivery drivers, do we not? We love them. But no offense, if you are a delivery driver, it's not because of you. It's because of what you're bringing. It's because it means the delivery driver there means we get what we're waiting for. And this is kind of why John's such a big deal. The fact that he's rocked up means finally what we've been waiting for is here. It means that that God is coming into the world to fix what's broken and to bring joy where there's sorrow and and hope where there's despair and life where there's death and peace where there's chaos and, and rest where there's weariness. John's arrival, the goodness of that, is because it means that the day of the Lord is coming soon. So so the first promise we get is the promise of John. Why is it good? Because it means the day of the Lord's coming. But then we want to ask this question: what do we learn from the response? You see, Luke is a doctor. We, we sort of saw this a little bit last week. He's a doctor, and the way that he writes is quite personal. It's, it's actually quite, in some ways, it's different to the rest of the uh, biographies in some ways. And what Luke does is he writes people into the story to show us who the eyewitnesses were, but also so that we can think, what would we have done in that situation? And what can we learn from those people in that situation? And, and so we get Zechariah here. 
Now, you've got to think about this. What would it have been like if you were Zechariah? You know, can you picture this? In the temple, you know, you're lighting incense. I know that this is sort of hard for my head to really wrap my head around, but you know that feeling sometimes at night if you light a candle and it's kind of peaceful and quiet and, and solemn? And Can you imagine in that moment if an angel rocked up? Right? Like, just in your house, rocked up? Well, what would you say in that moment? You know, what would you do in that moment? Well, well, Zechariah, here he is in the temple, you know, lighting the incense. It's this quiet, peaceful moment. And then all of a sudden, the angel rocks up and says this to him. Now, now what's he going to respond to the angel? Right, I wonder what you would say. Well, what, what does Zechariah say? Verse 18, we see Zechariah's response. This angel says, this is going to happen. And then he says to the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. I love that he doesn't call his wife old. <laughs> Just She's, you know, she's getting on too. Um, she, he says, how am I going to know this is going to happen? We're old. Now, I know on the surface this might sound like an okay response. But I think there's two reasons this is a bad response. The first is a very practical reason, okay? And, and, and this is just when you think about how you know anyone is pregnant. Do you know how you know anyone is pregnant? You wait until the baby's born, right? Like, this is why, in life, my general rule of thumb is you don't say anything to anyone regarding their pregnancy until they're holding that baby. Because that's how you know practically, physically, that someone's pregnant. Eventually, they're going to have a baby. Zechariah's like, how are we going to know? It's like, brother, just wait it out. Eventually, you're going to have a baby, and you'll see that it's true. So I think he should have known practically, but there's another reason, and of course, it's the supernatural reality to what's happening here. He's in the temple. He's in this holy place of God. He should know better, right? And then the angel appears to him, and he's afraid. He's scared. He gets that this is a big deal. Zechariah should have known better. And it's not just that, but, but he's actually mature in his faith. Like, this is not a, he's not starting out. Like, this is a guy who's blameless, who's older in his faith. He should have known better in the temple, but he questions the angel. And so what happens? Well, this is what happens. We see the angel responds. And you get this in verse 19. He says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak this to you. But look at verse 20. Now you will be silent. That word silent also means deaf as well, mute and deaf, which we see later is true. So now you're silent and deaf, you're mute and deaf, you're not going to be able to speak until all this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Zechariah should have known better. And because of that, he's disciplined by the Lord and he's made mute and silent until the baby is born. Now, this is I think this is actually just fascinating when you think about it and, and you think about what Luke is doing here because he wants us to learn from this and think about this. And what we see from Zechariah in this moment is the reality that actually for God's people, when they don't live God's way and they don't respond in the way they should, there are times when the Lord may discipline his children for the sake of producing godliness in them. Now, this is something we see elsewhere. This is something we see in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12, um, we see this. Let's chuck it up on the screen. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says this, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. 
And do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. The, the author of Hebrews is capturing what happens here to Zechariah. He's saying there are times where God will discipline you to produce something in you. Now, it's not out of anger. No, we know that when we put our trust in Jesus, the anger of the Lord was absorbed at the cross. So actually, like a father to a son, it's, it's out of love in the hope to produce something good in you. He says, endure hardship as discipline. Now, I think this is profound because I think it actually speaks to many of our stories. Like, if you think about the times in your life where you grew the most, I think many of us would say we grew the most through difficult moments, moments of struggle, moments of darkness. You know, if you, if you reflect on that, like, think about it right now. In the moments that you grew the most in your life, what was happening in that season? You know, I think of for us, like for Elizabeth and I, my wife and I, um, our daughter, Poppy, she's three this week. And for us, when we look back on uh, the, the birth of Poppy, the, we had some postpartum stuff going on in those first six months. And it was the darkness was just like, it felt like it was just, it rested and it made its home on our home. And it was hard. And we loved our daughter, but we hated the season. But two and a half years after that, now we can look back and see that actually that season was a moment where God was shaping us and producing something in us. And it's not that we say that darkness is from the Lord necessarily, although for Zechariah it actually was, but it's not that we, we put that on God, but actually what we see is that when darkness falls upon us, when difficulty comes upon us, that, there's, that God is doing something there. He hasn't given up on us. He's actually producing something in us for the sake of godliness and his glory. And I, and I think this is profound. Like, this changes things for us. Do you know, like, I wonder for you, if you thought about the difficult moments of your life, if instead of just thinking, this is from the devil, or instead of just thinking, this is because of other people's sin or my own sin, what if we thought about those difficult moments as God doing something, shaping us and producing something in us? disciplining us out of love for the sake of living the way that he called us to live. You know, Ze Zechariah's response in this moment, it actually does show us that there is, there is times where people don't respond the way they ought to respond, where we don't respond the way we ought to respond, and, and God may discipline us in those moments out of love for the sake of producing something good in us. I think we learn that from Zechariah here. We learn that in this promise and we're invited to see that. So, so let's take a step back, right? We see the promise. It's the promise of John. We see why it's good, because it means Jesus is coming soon. And what do we learn from Zechariah's response? We see that God disciplines the one he loves. But of course we know. We had read out for us before, right? The Christmas season is not just about the birth of John. It's about the birth of Jesus. So let's hook into Jesus. And notice as we look at this, the similarities between what we just saw with Zechariah, because it's basically the same pattern. But the responses are different, and what God does is different. So let's have a look, because in verse 26, we see that God's angel rocks up to Mary. And uh, she's a, a virgin, uh, married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of, of David. Um, and the angel rocks up and says, Greetings, you are highly favored. And Mary's troubled at these words. But let's just again set the context here. So Mary's on the other end to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Mary... It actually, in the cultural context, so she's engaged to be married. 
and the cultural context. She's about 14 years old, which always is weird to me because culturally we're just not there right now, but in the ancient world this was quite normal and, and probably about the age that she is. And so she's, she's a 14-year-old essentially, you know, that's a guess, but that's around the, the age. She's pledged to be married, so she's engaged to Joseph, and then this angel rocks up. And, and so what's the promise that Mary gives, uh, the angel gives to Mary? Well, well, she's freaking out. And then the angel says in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. That word favor is literally grace. God is looking upon you graciously. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you were to call him the name Jesus. So, so what's the promise? The promise is of a baby. right? That, that's clear. And it's of the promise of Jesus. Now, we've got a sense of why this is good from John, right? That's setting us up for why this is good. But why? let's ask the question, why is this good? Well, let's look at verse 32 to 33. Because it says this, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So the promise is the promise of Jesus. Why is it good? Well, well, it's captured in these verses here. And you've got a sense of why it's good there. He's the king. You know, we were singing about this before. The king of kings who will reign forever. But again, to understand this, we've got to understand the, the context, the Old Testament that's, that's loaded in this verse. In fact, you know, I kind of think about it like if, if, if this was hyperlinked, you know, like when you're online sending an email or whatever, and sometimes you scroll over a word and it's, you know, it's hyperlinked to something else. You've got that underline, it goes blue sometimes. If this verse was hyperlinked to the Old Testament, I don't know if we'd have enough time to look at all those passages. But let's just look at a few here this morning, because in this verse, it's just loaded with Old Testament weight, things that people were expecting. So the first one is from Genesis chapter 3, because in Genesis 3, you get this moment where God is, is you know, the Adam and Eve, they've stuffed up, they've fallen, and then God is putting punishment out um, to the snake and, and to Adam and Eve and all that sort of stuff. But this is this line to the snake where God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He'll crush your head and you will strike his heel. And it, it's, it's, it sort of sounds really small, but what that did is it set people up for the rest of the Bible to look out for the offspring that would come and crush the serpent's head. In fact, Every time you read a genealogy in the Bible, you're sort of, you're, you're meant to go, is this the guy? Is this the offspring, right? That's, that's what it does for you because you think, oh, here's some offsprings, right? Let's have a look at that. So, so this sets up for us to look out for an offspring. But then we go, let's flick over to uh, 2 Samuel 7 because in 2 Samuel you get another moment where this is really significant where God is speaking to David and uh, he says this in verse 12. Um, he says this, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up for your offspring to su succeed you. So what are you thinking? You're thinking snake crusher, yes? Right, that's what we're meant to be thinking. We're thinking, okay, there's an offspring coming. This is good news. Your own flesh and blood and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So now we're building our understanding of, of the one who's going to come to crush the serpent's head. It's not just going to be any offspring. It's going to be an offspring in the line of David, who's going to rule forever. But let's go one more. This is in Isaiah chapter 9, probably the most quoted Old Testament passage of this time. But look at this and think about what we've just seen and what, what's, what it says in Luke. It says this, For to us a child is born, 
To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So, so it builds up for us what this baby is. It's the snake crusher. It's the king who will rule forever. It's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting, eternal God and Father. It's the prince of peace. And this God will reign and rule forever. The government will be on his shoulders. Now, do you see when we come back to Luke, you see how all of this is loaded in these verses in 32 to 33. Let's just read that again and notice how this is all there. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And so when you see this promise and you see the power of this promise, you begin to realize this is the one. This is the baby. This is the offspring. This is the snake crusher. This is the one who will rule forever. And, and when you begin to look at this, you begin to realize that the story of Christmas also points us to the story of the cross and then of the crown forever. Because as Jesus is born, we know that it's not just his birth where he's going to crush the serpent's head. It's through what he'll do. He'll live a perfect life and then he'll die on the cross and he'll crush the serpent's head on the cross. But of course, his foot will be bruised but then he will die and rise again and ascend into glory forever and the king will rule forever. And in this way, you begin to see the, the, the Christmas story and you see the cross and you see the crown forever and you begin to see why this promise is so good. It's because here in Jesus, it's, it's not this seasonal thing. It's not a temporary thing. Here in Jesus is the one who will fix all that's broken, who will bring joy where there is despair and hope and peace and rest. This king is truly good. And it's good on its own, but of course it's also good when you contrast the promises of this present season. You know, like when we think about what's coming up in Christmas and the promises that we're talking about in this podcast, right? Like it's, at its best, Christmas is good. You know, we, we get fun with friends and family. At its best, there's good food. At its best, you get time off. But the truth is, and I feel like it's almost cruel saying this, but the truth is the Christmas season will end. Do you know what happens every year? January. Is that not the worst? And actually, this is the point that this psychologist was saying, this, or the, the guy on the podcast was saying, if you think the season's going to deliver on your promise, it won't because January's coming. You know, you might get the eye of the storm, but the storm's just going to pick up again mid-January. It's this seasonal, temporary joy. And that's not to say we can't enjoy it. Like, I hope that you can, and I hope that the season's beautiful for you. But we have to recognize this can't truly deal with our problems. But do you see Jesus? Do you see the goodness of Jesus? This is not temporary. This is not seasonal. Jesus came into the world, died on a cross, rose again, ascended forever, and now he promises us something eternal, joy eternal, peace eternal, hope and rest eternal. This is no ordinary baby. 
or temporary thing we celebrate. The reason for this is there is an eternal goodness to this. And the prayer is that this might spark a childlike wonder as we look to Jesus once again and the goodness of this. So what's the promise? It's the promise of a baby. Why is it good? Well, it's because this is the king that the Old Testament is speaking about. But let's learn from the response. Let's have a look at the response again, because this too is, I think, fascinating. Because the angel rocks up and says, this is going to happen. And again, can you picture being Mary? Right? Can you picture this moment? You know, like being told, hey, the, the one that the Old Testament spoke about prophesied, he's coming and you're going to have that baby. I mean, that's wild, is it not? And I, I like, can you, like she's 14, right? Maybe you're 14 here this morning. Can you picture that? This is insane. And, and so how is Mary going to respond to this? Well, she responds in verse 34. And she says, How will this be, Mary asked, the angel, since I am a virgin? She's saying, I'm not even married. How's this going to happen? Now, who does that sound like? Who does her response sound like? Does it not sound like Zechariah's response? So Zechariah before it, he says, How's this going to happen? We're old. And she's essentially saying, How's this going to happen? I'm young. Right, very, it's, it's a similar response, isn't it? So let's ask this question. How is the angel going to respond to Mary? Discipline her? No, this is quite beautiful. The angel in verse 35 says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born and will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her own old age. And she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail when mary says how's this going to happen the angel says well god's going to do it and and here's the evidence do you notice that he basically says god's going to do it and here's the evidence now that's a different response to zechariah isn't it so why is it a different response why didn't the angel say to mary you're mute and deaf well i think it's because zechariah should have known better he was a priest. He was mature in his faith. He was older in his faith. But Mary was just starting out. She's young. She's on this journey. And they ask essentially the same question, but God responds differently. And it shows us something we see right throughout the Bible, that God responds differently to all of us. He deals with us personally. Do you know this? Like God does not deal with you the same way that he deals with everyone else. He deals with you differently to the person next to you because God is a personal God who deals with us where we're at. And for some of us, maybe we're like Zechariah. We're mature in our faith. And the truth is we need to think about our response and we need to respond better because we've been responding the wrong way. And if we don't, perhaps we will face discipline. But the, the other truth is some of us are like Mary. And some of us still have questions. And some of us are still on this journey. And some of us are still young. And the truth is, if we're more like Mary than we are like Zechariah, the beauty of this is God deals with us personally and where we're at. If you're starting out in the journey, you do not need to be like someone at the end of the journey. For all of us, we just need to take one step of faithfulness at, the to at a time. And when Mary says, how is this going to happen? The angel says, well, two things. One, God's going to do it. God's going to do this work. Do you know the God that made the world? Well, that God is going to do this work. The God who created something out of nothing, this God is going to create in you this baby Jesus. Now, this is, of course, the virgin birth. And it is something that Christians believe. 
And I know that maybe as you're sitting there, maybe you've got questions about this, right? And maybe this is something difficult for you to get your head around. Um, And the truth is, in some ways it should be, because it is a big miracle. But I was thinking about this uh, this week, or watching something actually this week, speaking about the virgin birth. It's something that Christians believe. And the guy was pointing this truth out, which I just thought, this is interesting. And what he pointed out was that when you think about it, for some people... There is a secular view of the beginning of the world where for some people they believe that something was created out of nothing by no one. Do you know, like some people believe that something was created out of nothing by no one. And you know, that's, that's okay to believe that if that's what you want to believe, but it requires faith to believe that. Do you see that? Like that actually requires faith to get to that point. For Christians, when it comes to the virgin birth, we're just saying something was created out of nothing by someone. I think, it, I think it takes less faith to believe that, personally, because it makes more logical sense that there's a God who did that work. Now, maybe you've got questions about that. Let's ask those questions. Let's pursue this stuff together. But I just think when we think about the virgin birth, let's not just put it on this pedestal like it's the craziest thing ever and think that there's no other beliefs that don't come close to it. No, we're saying something was created out of nothing by someone. God did it just like God created the world around us. So when Mary says this, God says, well, the angel says, well, God's going to do it. But then secondly, I I love this too, the angel doesn't just say God's going to do it, the angel points to the evidence. Do you notice this? In verse 36, the angel says to Mary, look at your relative Elizabeth. She was old and, you know, they said childless. And look, she's six months into her pregnancy. It's as if the angel is saying, okay, this might be a struggle for you, but the evidence is here elsewhere that God is doing this work. And again, I think there's something quite profound in this moment because what we're seeing here is the truth that if you struggle with one thing in the Christian faith, if you've got doubts and questions, sometimes what helps is just by looking at something that you might know and the evidence for something else. So, you know, for the virgin birth, let's just think about this. But The truth is, you might be sitting here today and you might have all sorts of questions when it comes to things in the Bible. Maybe it is the virgin birth. Maybe it's suffering in the world. Maybe it's the sovereignty of God. Maybe it's the way that God calls you to live your life. And, you know, you think, your your questions when it comes to this, you think, really? Did God really say that? Or is that really the way that we've got to think about that? Maybe, you know, you're sitting here on that journey. Well, the truth is, there are some things that might be difficult But if we struggle with one thing, what we can do is we can look at the evidence of something else. So let me explain. For the virgin birth, we actually can't prove the virgin birth. Do you know, like, we can't, I can't send Jesus' DNA away to Ancestry.com and get a DNA test back that's going to say there's the evidence. We, We don't have that ability. But do you know what? I think that there's other areas that we can look at where God worked that gives us confidence over the virgin birth. And for me, it's always the resurrection. Because when I look at the resurrection, I think there's evidence around that that helps you with the virgin birth. So we looked at this last week. There's eyewitnesses' accounts. You know, eyewitnesses saw it happened. I think that's quite profound. There's, There's accounts inside and outside of the Bible that Christians claim that Jesus rose from the dead. I think that's quite convincing. I think what else is quite convincing is the fact that there's an empty tomb and no good answer to that. I think it's quite convincing when you look at the disciples' transformation. You know, you see these cowards essentially hiding in a room and then they would go on courageously to die for their faith, essentially. 
And you think, how do cowards turn to courageous leaders dying for their faith? Well, they claimed it was the resurrection. Or you think of someone like Saul. He killed Christians. This is not a guy who wanted it to be true. And yet he meets Jesus and comes to faith and will go on and tell people about the risen Lord Jesus. Or what about this? You know, you just think about, you know, the Christmas story. We've got like this baby born in a, you know, a stable, a manger, humble beginnings to know, to, you know, Mary and Joseph, they were essentially nobodies, right? So you get this, this birth of Jesus in a manger, in a stable, in Bethlehem, a small, you know, a small town and all that sort of stuff. And then he would go and die for his faith. Oh, sorry, he would go and die for what he claimed. And, and that was his beginnings. And yet now, when we look back to this, Jesus is kind of the center of history. How does that happen? Right? How does a nobody born nowhere change the course of history? Well, the claims from the billions of people that follow him are because he was raised from the dead. For me, it's always the resurrection. And when I look at the resurrection and the evidence of the resurrection, I believe it takes more faith to not believe it than to believe it. Now, here's what it does for the virgin birth. If Jesus raised from the dead, the virgin birth is easy. Do you know, if he could come back from the dead, then, then this thing over here is not a big thing. And so if you're struggling with that, that's okay. Just look where God has worked elsewhere. Because we can have confidence of what God has done elsewhere. And so, so for Mary, she says, how's this going to happen? And the angel responds in this way. But this is not the end of Mary's response. She responds once more. And as the angel says this, verse 38, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. You know, I think there are traditions that overplay Mary, perhaps. And there are traditions that underplay Mary, perhaps. And we might be more of the latter, but look at her response. This is beautiful. Like a 14-year-old girl being overwhelmed with that, and she responds in this way and says, I'm the Lord's servant. And here too, we can learn from this. You see, when we look at the promises of Christmas, when we see why it's good, we can ask our questions. Yes, ask your questions. We saw this last week. Carefully investigate this. But at the end of the day, the response, once we look at the promises and then see why it's good, the response can't just be, I want the Lord's stuff. That's how we want to respond, right? I'll take forgiveness. I'll take heaven. I'll take the Lord's stuff because that's the good stuff. No, the response must be, I am the Lord's servant. You see, Jesus is the Savior, of course. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us a place in the family. But this passage reminds us this is the king, the king of kings, the king who will rule forever. And the only response that we can make to this king is not just I want his stuff, but I submit, I surrender, I am the Lord's servant. So this Christmas, as we think about this, as we think about the promises and why they're good, ask your questions, yes, but may we all land where Mary landed with the response, I am the Lord's servant. And may your word be fulfilled. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this season. We thank you for the, uh, the promises of this Christmas season and that they are not temporary or seasonal, but they're lasting and eternal because Jesus, the King of Kings, was born. We thank you for his 
birth and his life and his death and the resurrection and the ascension and we thank you that our king reigns forever lord as we reflect on this truth and think about this truth may our response be like mary's response where once we've asked our questions may we move on to the place where we can surrender to jesus i am the lord's servant give us this grace give us this help we pray in jesus name amen